Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. This episode is really something different. It's a live show that we did on April 21st in Green Bay, Wisconsin, as part of Untitled Town Book and Author Festival, now in its second year. I'd never been to Green Bay before. Nice town. You may know about the cheese and the football, but did you know that the Red Hot Chili Peppers once fled from the police for an unfortunate wardrobe malfunction at a concert and spent the night hanging out at a local fan's house? I learned this and much, much more from the wonderful people I met there. What's great about live shows is that anything can happen, and so to preserve that feeling in all its glory, we're not editing this one much. So grab your popcorn, sit back, and imagine yourself in sunny, snow-covered Green Bay, Wisconsin. Thank you so much. A film critic, a New York Times film critic, recently was talking about how during Oscars time, people are always saying, I want to thank. I want to thank my publicist. I want to thank, et cetera. And that it's a pet peeve of hers because you don't want to thank, you thank or you don't, right? So thank you, Untitled Town, for having us. Thank you, Brown County Library, um, Main Branch, for hosting us here today. Um, thank you, Kurt, for helping us set up. And, uh, and, and thank you, Kristen Radke, for being with me. I'm actually blocking you, aren't I? A live event, this is our second live event ever, and it, it sort of demands a little, a little bit of preamble. So I, I, wanna, I wanna talk to you very briefly about, about Think Again and where we started and where we're at at this point. The show started in 2015, and my idea, the, the, what I knew that I wanted it to be was that I wanted to be able to engage in big, complicated, difficult ideas in a way that was accessible, in a way that everyone felt welcome to the table. Um, the word intellectual sometimes becomes a dirty word. I am an enemy of things like Mensa and things that, things that basically try to shut people out from being able to engage in, in, in higher, deeper thinking. I, I, I think ideas are important. And I think that not only the ideas about like how do we run our government and how do we, you know, what exactly should we do tomorrow, but even just the broad, open philosophical talk about the meaning of our lives, I think that stuff is important. And I think that um, I think we should all feel free and delighted to engage in it with curiosity and openness and, and wonder and uncertainty. And so I wanted the show to be a place where all of that could happen and where ideas could cross-pollinate and bump into each other in surprising ways. And the way, so the way we engineered that was my parent, the parent company of Think Again is Big Think, which, um, which has been around since 2008 and is possibly best known for these short form white screen video interviews that are like two to five minutes long that have somebody you might have heard of in, 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 in anywhere from science to the arts to a historian talking about some big idea. And so we structured the podcast so that in part of it, the guest and I will watch surprise clips from these archives as conversation starters. So I haven't seen them. They're chosen by our video team. I don't watch them before the show. The guest doesn't watch them before the show. Um, and I sit down with them in our New York 
studio. We, we talk a bit about their work, and then we encounter these surprise videos. Uh, and the conversation goes where it goes. So that was very scary. Um, I mean, I'd never done anything like this before, really, in 2015 when we started this. But I wanted it to be scary. I wanted, I wanted to put myself and to put guests who maybe are used to saying the same thing over and over in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people in the position of discovering something. And, and the show at its best is, is able to do that. I'm really, really happy today to be speaking with Kristen Radke. She's a graphic novelist, incredibly talented graphic novelist, and the author and illustrator of Imagine Wanting Only This. And she's also art director for The Believer magazine and the New York editor for Believer magazine. Imagine Wanting Only This, to me, is about the ways that we look into the world for patterns and for meaning and for things that we can consider as ours, you know, to understand ourselves and to have a sense of belonging and the ways that the world allows that and the ways that the world resists that. Um, but Kristen can correct me if it's about more than that or something else entirely. Welcome to Think Again. Thank you. I, I just said what I think it's about. Why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about what you think it's about? I don't totally know. Like one of the weird things about publishing a book is then then everybody, all the reviews talk to you about what it's about or like what the intention was behind something, which is really interesting because you learn things about your book or how it's perceived and things that maybe were accidental suddenly seem less accidental or things or vice versa. But my like elevator pitch while I was working on it was just, it's a book about an obsession with ruins and abandoned places. Does it span maybe two decades or a decade of time in your life? It goes, it covers different periods. Yeah, but largely, like the the main narration is probably ten years max. So, and and during this time in the in the book, you're you you do become fascinated in ruins and in places that have been abandoned, and you go around to them, drawing them. And this, I assume, is something you were actually doing. Yeah. And why? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Again, talking about accidents, I think a lot of it was accidental. I didn't realize that I was, you know, I was always writing and I was in a lot of this. I was in grad school and I was writing short essays about, you know, a variety of things. Like you sort of just try to, you latch onto something you're interested in and you see what works. And it wasn't until a couple of years into it that I realized that I was writing about a lot of the same things. Like that one, that Gary, Indiana had something in common with, you know, an abandoned mining town off the coast of Nagasaki and that all these stories were really similar and the sort of the process by which we abandon places or in which we outgrow places or places become less useful to us sort of kind of happens over and over and over again in a really similar pattern. Let's go a little deeper though into these like these abandoned places. What is the feeling for you? What is the you know what did those places kind of mean to you or what did you want them to mean or what did they come to mean ultimately? I think it depended on the place. I think, you know, the disappointed traveler is a pretty common trope in literature. And I think I was the disappointed traveler a lot. I would spend a lot of time researching a place and saving up money to go to a place or like applying for absurd grants to go to a place. And I would get there and it would be exactly like I imagined it because it's, you know, it's empty. Like the island I mentioned off the coast of Nagasaki is Hashima Island that is now the site of like several movies. It's like very bombed out looking and 
uh, completely empty. There's like a tour group that goes there. Right. And that was always disappointing. It was like there was no new, new discovery to be made. So I think in a lot of ways I felt disappointed by them. But that's also... What is, what is it you were looking for? I, I have no idea. I mean, part of it too is I think when you're in your early 20s, or at least me when I was in my early 20s, I was really restless and I just kind of wanted to see everything. Like I had this idea that the only way my life would matter or count is if I saw like every single thing I could see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big thing in the book. You're yeah. just like, it's like you, this compulsion yeah. driving you to see everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know where that comes from other than I think we all just try to find an outlet when we feel like untethered or unsure about the path or the life we're making for ourselves. Huh. What do you think you thought would happen if you saw everything? Like, what would happen to you? <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> like, I would, I, I would be able to tally up these things that I'd seen or done. Oh, so it was about acquiring. I think so. Sense. I okay. think it was like, and I think that was also why I saw things sometimes in a really one-dimensional way when I would go there is, I, you know, I always thought I'd be a journalist and then I realized I was terrified of doing interviews and talking to people and like I would, you know, when I would, I would when I would be working on a story, I'd be, I would put off the phone calls and the interviews as long as I could because it was just terrifying to me. And so I think there was a way in which I had these like delusions of grandeur of like this like world traveler that I would be like uncovering these stories and then I would go there and find myself feeling really out of place. Right. I mean, I, I think there's something interesting in the way that you communicate in that in that book and I guess the way that a graphic novel communicates in general uh, shifting as it does between I mean, you're, you're a very strong writer but you shift between um, between sometimes very detailed writing and pages and pages of just imagery yeah yeah I, I mean, si silence is one of the things that I think is most interesting about the graphic novel form. I love the, my, I think every artist has their own kind of barometer or set of rules. But for me, if I can draw something, I don't write it. And that's kind of my justification for why I'm using this form. I was thinking as I was reading it about the, the decisions that you make throughout, about where to sort of zoom in, where to pull out, where like, like the whole page at one point is a, a map or a section of the page. How, uh, do you, what would you say about sort of how you make those decisions as you're going through? I, I storyboard at first, and often the storyboard is like a really bare bones idea of what a scene will be. And then when I start drawing it, I realize like the, the space between point A and point B is actually several more letters mm -hmm. and it will grow from there. But, and I think then the challenge is to not, sometimes I want to slow everything down. Like I want everything to be at this like glacial pace because I love the experience of, for me, when I'm reading a comic, I love the experience of watching someone move from one space to another. But for me, the challenge is knowing, I think when to tighten it back up and speed it back up. So you're thinking in terms of the flow of time. Yeah. And how do you like how do you feel that out while you're storyboarding? Are you just kind of like intuiting what it might be like for the reader? Or? I think I think for me, every creator is probably different, but I hear this a lot that the hardest part is having nothing. Like the the blank page is the enemy of any creator because that first impetus I think is the hardest. So for me, I just try to get something down. Like if I was drawing this scene, I might do it in four panels and then realize it's four pages or more. But to get, to get those drawings started, that's when I realized the space that exists between them. And like when you sat down to, to start Imagine Wanting Only This, it, it was, 
are you drawing on, do you have a hundred notebooks? What, 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 yeah. what is the source material? Yeah. Source, source photos, source, source notes. I take, I try to take as many notes as possible because it's again, fighting that blank page thing. Right. Um, and sometimes I find, you know, you think you're writing some moronic thing down and then I'll go through a notebook years later and realize that that sentence that I wrote down in the middle of the night or like while I was on the bus ended up verbatim in a book. Like there are sometimes your first idea or your first impression is the best gotcha. idea. Sometimes it's a nightmare, but I think there's sometimes where you have like this germ of an idea that comes to you when you're not, when you haven't been sitting at your desk for 10 hours and you have to like allow that to live. What seems frightening to me about that is that like accumulation, I mean, going back to what you were saying before about accumulating experiences and trying to like absorb everything possible, you know, from the standpoint of getting something down on paper, as you said, you know, where do I begin? How do I put all this into shape? If you're going around the world and you're just kind of gathering and, and storing this, you know, seemingly endless amount of material, how do you as an artist think about how will I eventually sift through all this? What if I have a room full of archives? Then you you're know? like the luckiest artist ever. That's a good yeah. Thing. I think I think the more material you have, the better off you are. And sometimes it takes time to see what is relevant and what's not. And I think sometimes that takes space. Like you have to come back to something and see, but sometimes something that's totally irrelevant to one project, you'll realize an interview you did years ago or this place you went to years ago is somehow totally related to the piece you're working on now. Mm -hmm. So I think like having as much of an archive as possible. I also say this as someone who my parents recently sold their, or are selling my childhood house and I threw away like a literal, recycling bin full of all of my old papers. So I think there is sometimes for me, it was like, there's a point in which I want to let things go. Right. But I think we should write things down as much as we can. Did you look through all of those papers before throwing them away? I, I noticed they were meticulously organized, which I felt very proud by. Did you actually like look at all of them or did you just say this box can go? I, I, I looked through them sort of, but most of it, it's like, do I really need early drafts of a book that's been published? Do I really need like right. my, my college professor's notes on my essays. Like, I think there's a time to let go. Yeah, yeah. I wanna go back to the idea of meaning making that I mentioned in the beginning, um, which is in the book, for example, your mother going back after, after your uncle passes away, going back and becoming interested in genealogy and trying to put together that puzzle of the family. That's, I think, where history becomes really complicated is because then you have to, especially if it's a personal history or a family history, then thinking about how, like, what's the larger meaning or the context. And I think that's similar to what I was saying about sometimes feeling let down by the places that I saw. I, I found myself really caught up in, you know, like the history of the Peshtigo fire, which was the deadliest fire in America that happened on the same day as the Great Chicago fire. But really outside of Wisconsin, no one really knows about it. Right. And thinking about how dramatically different this region would be if that hadn't happened. And then, you know, my family's role in it. And then it feels very significant to you in these moments. And then you realized in a certain way, like hundreds of years has, have passed. What is this? What's the significance anymore? And in a certain way that can be a sort of a letdown when, cause I think there is a desire as artists to spin meaning out of everything we encounter. And in a certain way, everything we encounter is really meaningful. Right. But I think, I think perhaps that that disappointment is part of the process too, or that struggling to figure out your place within a story. 
we want to pay homage. We want to pay respect to the things that have happened in our lives and the things that we find meaningful. And you know, one of the reasons I think that people make art is to write, get those things down sure. in, in a way. And so it's it's a strange push pull. On the one hand, that impulse. You know, like after 9-11, you know, never forget yeah. all over New York City, never forget, never forget. And this impulse that we have to, you know, cement something and make sure that we never forget it and that the meaning is known and anchored in place and time and, and, and location. And on the other hand, the fact, as you say, throughout the book that like in the end, nothing actually belongs to you. In right. the end, like when you leave the place... You're gone. Finally, you left. there won't be yeah. a trace. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe it's a, this is, I think, a very human pro like problem, the sort of like, what will remain? What will my life significance be? But I think even, you know, in like the rise of social media, the number of like teenage girls on a on subway cars like taking pictures their selfies together and being like pick or it didn't happen like there's this i think there's this desire we all have this desire to document our lives in a certain way to like cement it because we want evidence in some way yeah well and for and for this generation and going forward there everything will be documented but then the question becomes who sifts through right. how do you sift through when do you you know because if everything is documented, then everything is sort of equally right. meaningless unless somebody goes and curates right. through it. But maybe the things we're, the way we're documenting things now won't exist. And, you know, we look at like early computer technology, like people are still having trouble figuring out how to decode like the first disk that we made. Like mm -hmm. the lifespan of those things are really short. Certainly like the, the, personal websites we were all making in the early 2000s like no longer exist it's a completely different internet technology i mean who knows what the internet is going to look like in 20 years and how much will actually last well, i was reading your book i was thinking of this uh, poem by yates that i wanted to share and maybe talk about because i think it gets a little bit at it gets a little bit at the struggles that you were going through as a young person that you write about in the book and it gets also at i think I think in some interesting ways, maybe the work of making a graphic novel this monumental and sifting through all the stuff as we were talking about. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read a short uh, William Butler Yeats poem here. <clears throat> this is from when he was, um, he was the director of the Abbey Theater in, uh, in Dublin. And, you know, he, he's a poet, obviously, but in the Abbey Theater, he was deal, having to deal with logistics and running productions, and I guess he got a little sick of it. It's called The Fascination of What's Difficult. The fascination of what's difficult has dried the sap out of my veins and rent spontaneous joy and natural content out of my heart. There's something ails our cult that must, as if it had not holy blood, nor on Olympus leaped from cloud to cloud, shiver under the lash, strain, sweat, and jolt, as though it dragged road metal. My curse on plays that have to be set up in 50 ways, on the day's war with every knave and dolt, theater business, management of men, I swear before the dawn comes round again, I'll find the stable and pull out the bolt. And, and I, I think I wanted to use that as a segue into like 
the tension between the pure experience of seeing and like gathering information in the world that you do, um, going around and with your notebooks and your photographs and whatever, and how you get from that ultimately to something like a, a full graphic novel. I've always loved that Yeats poem, and I think that title is interesting, like the fascination of what's difficult, because I feel like art is often very preoccupied with this. and. One of my favorite writers, Susan Steinberg, said in an interview once, I think we have an obligation to keep art complicated. And in some ways I agree with that and in some ways I push against that a lot. I mean, I think the art is a given. I think if we, we are artists, we are making art, we understand that. The challenge then is to make it accessible and to make it available to a wide you know, range of people. But I do feel like we're often driv driven by the difficulty of things or the complicated nature of things, like even in our personal lives, to quote, like we can just keep the quotes going. But, uh, yeah. you know, in Rachel Kushner's The Flamethrowers, she has this great line that's, uh, people who are difficult to love are actually easier to love because you're driven to love them. And I think art is sometimes in a similar, functions in a similar way. The, the first quote that you mentioned about the obligation to keep, keep art complicated, what do, what do you think she meant by that? I mean, I think there's, uh, we're all we're supposed to write for our smartest reader. We're supposed to make art for our smartest viewer. And I think in a certain way that's valuable. Like there's been a lot of conversations about like the dumbing down of literary criticism, mm. things like that. But in a certain way, I think when to talk about literary criticism in a space where our, our, in our newspapers where our literary criticism is shrinking and our space for books is shrinking, why are we wasting time panning books? Like I, I think there is value in, in spending our time lauding books that deserve it. Like, I don't necessarily see that as a dumbing down. You can talk about complicated ideas in a way that doesn't shut people out. And that, I think, is a nice segue into The, the Believer, um, which I think, you know, so you're, you're art director there and you're New York editor, which means that you are, like, was working with writers in New York to yeah. find pieces. And I am sort of, uh, The Believer is located in Las Vegas at the Black Mountain Institute at UNLV and I'm the sort of New York arm of that. So I'm also just being kind of like an ambassador in New York. So I, I read the most recent uh, issue of The Believer, um, which, which was really interesting. And you've got comics in there and you've got poetry and, and, and you know, short, funny vignettes. And, and the interview style in there is very interesting as well. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, do you know, like what was the what's the thinking behind the fact that the like in the interviews the interviewer is not a person it's the believer the believer yeah so in in they'll, they'll interview writers and it, you know say the believer asks this question yeah i actually don't know this the origin story behind that i mean there's an introduction that's written by a specific writer that's credited in that way but in, like the great interviews are really heavily edited. And I, I like the idea that it's sort of like a communal voice of a magazine rather than an individual writer. And, and what do you, so what is the voice of the believer sort of trying to be at this point? I mean, because, it, because it, there aren't a lot of literary magazines left that, that people actually read, and The Believer is one of, one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, the ones, that they're, the ones that come out of university writing programs, I think, are read mostly by other writers yeah. or the writers whose pieces appear, appear in, in the magazines. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know. I mean, I do think that Believer is a really unique publication. It's a nonfiction magazine that's 
which is rare. Often nonfiction has a very small place in literary magazines and it's focused primarily on fiction and poetry. We do have a great poetry section. But I think the, you know, the foundation of the believer, the working title of the believer was the optimist. And it's about, it's just sort of about a, like an opening up towards the arts and a celebration of culture and literature. And we're also just interested in, in doing weird things, I think, in a way that a lot of, like I, a lot of our writers write for Harper's and The New Yorker and all of those publications, and then they come to us when Harper's thinks that piece is a little too strange or maybe not timely enough. And for us, like, what does it mean if you devote 20 pages to something that happened 10 years ago. You know, some of right. our best pieces have been in that way. In the issue I read, there was an interview with Vanna White, which I thought was really interesting because on the one hand, you know, I was worried that it was just going to be kind of a, a, a snarky piece for people of my generation, kind of in a sense smirking at right. Vanna White as who, who is this person really, but we all know her kind of thing. Yeah. But it en ended up having a, a lot of heart. I think Vanna White's really interesting. And I think also she's someone who is sort of, speaking of you know the place we have in culture, like she's someone who is pushed out because of her age. And you know she, she was sort of this like emblem to us for so long on this you know constantly syndicated program. Whoever interviewed her really kind of gave her space yeah. to unpack. Her own inner life. Yeah, yeah, we got a sense of the person. Yeah. It was really interesting. I think this is a good place for us to go to the second part of the show. This is, uh, this is where we're going to watch a couple of surprise clips from Big Think's video interview archives. I have not seen them, and Kristen hasn't seen them before. I'm going to project it back here. Hopefully everything will go well technically with that. Uh, so we'll watch the first one, and then, uh, and then we'll talk. And this is New York non-live Jason interjecting to tell you that the speaker in this first clip is Jean Luen Yang, a graphic novelist. I got in touch with this group called racebending.com, which uh, calls out, you know, Hollywood and, and American, different American storytelling industries on, on, uh, on casting issues, on, on cultural appropriation. Um, so cultural appropriation, um, I, think, I think it's a tricky issue because it's difficult to say what is being appropriated. You know, I, I, think, I think a larger issue, uh, the, the larger question might be this, the larger question might be um, when you are interacting with a culture that is not your own, when you are interacting with a culture that has no roots, no, no ties to your family history, are you doing so in a humble and respectful manner? You know, are you, are you going in with a certain sense of humility, and, and are you going in, uh, in, in a, with a posture of learning as opposed to uh, a posture of, of teaching, or even worse, profiteering? You know, I, I think those are those are the those are the big questions within cultural appropriation. I, I know there's this there's this huge um, debate about political correctness as well, and, and and whether or not it's exceeded its original intention, whether it's a good thing or a, a bad thing, whether it gets in the way of, of having a sense of humor. Like I hear all that, right? My understanding of political correctness is this. My understanding is that political correctness is all about people figuring out what labels they themselves want to use. It's giving people power over their own identities, right? Like it's, it's, it's basically like me saying, I get to decide what you call me. It's tied into um, the history of colonialism, the history of, of people feeling like 
labels were placed on top of them and they had no they had no say in, in, in what those labels were. So I, I think that I think the heart of po political correctness is is about a respect for human dignity, about a respect for the, for the dignity of, of every individual. I think this comes up in art generally. I mean, the question of sort of what 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 right you know. What are the limits for the artist? What right does the artist have to do and say what, when, about what, you know, and what materials to repurpose? And like, I sometimes think that art itself, there's a certain act of violence inherent in that. You know, the person is reaching into the world, taking materials and making something out of them. And this comes up in your book as well, yeah. especially with, with respect to ruins and who has a right to say what. Yeah, I think it's, this is a really big struggle, I think, for every artist, or it should be, uh, the idea of which stories do we have a right to tell, um, which stories are ours and, and how do we represent them and how do we represent them respectfully. What is some of your thinking on this or, or, and maybe that came up when you were working on... Well, I mean, Imagine on the one, one hand, I, I feel like um, sto stories belong to everyone and, and, and there should be no limits, and, but that's not reality. I mean, that we don't live in a world without context and that's, that's like on a, sort of in an ideological way, I think that that's true. But when stories have traditionally been told by people who look and come from exactly the same place, um, that's that's just not true. Like that's just not how how we should be making work. It's extremely limiting if every time we are trying to make something, we have to make sure that it's grounded in something that we personally own in some profound sense. Like if we can only make art about. I don't know, our, own, our own background, right. our own history, our own culture. Yeah, and I don't think that's true. I think it's about doing the work, though. I think it's about whose words are you using, and if you're using other someone else's words, are you have you really taken the time to get to know and to understand what that means? Trying to make sure you're not trampling on anybody's memories and culture, or kind of or just like passing them off as your own or misrepresenting them. So with respect to this idea of like ruin porn or, you know, ruinophilia that's talked about in different ways that throughout history, this interest, this fascination uh, with, with, with ruins that belong to cultures that are not ours. I mean, there was some criticism that you, you talk about in, in, in the book calling this a sort of cultural Exploited appropriation. Yeah. yeah. I do mean, you, do I you think there's, yeah, in some ways, I think uh, it was something I was trying to, in some ways, I'm trying to push against, against that idea because I think some of the criticisms about ruined porn that came about really after the fall of the automobile industry in Detroit, a lot of artists were coming through just like taking pictures, putting them on the internet with no context for the people who lived there. Like it was just about sensationalism. It was just about like, how can we get, you know, if it's an abandoned hospital, like let's make sure we get that wheelchair in the shot or this baby crib right. in the shot. And it was all about sort of like quick emotional reactions. Okay. And there was a way in which that's kind of gross, but I mean, it, it is gross. Um, but there's also a way in which I think we can look in a way and record in a way that's still respectful and that's still important. I mean, I think not looking at those things is absolutely the wrong response. I think there's, ap there's certainly a way in which we've reflected these places in a way that is sensationalistic and exploitative. But in some ways, I think some of the criticism was about fear. Like, you know, I, I talk about this in my book, but we can, we can look at ruins from a thousand years ago. We can look at things that we've excavated, you know, Mayan ruins or the Acropolis or, 
you know, the Colosseum. And there's no sort of fear there because these people seemed so different from who we are. But if we see like crumbling Art Deco skyscrapers in a once thriving metropolis, that looks a lot more like our lives. So I right. think in some ways it was just a sort of defense mechanism out of like a, a fear that's sort of becoming realized as certain industries become irrelevant. You know, obviously, if they're being exploited for in order to sell newspapers, right. if, you know, if it's driven by commercial urges, which is hard to separate out, I suppose, yeah. even with a quote unquote pure artist. I sure. mean, they want people to look at their work. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there, there, there's a valid criticism there. Also, there's the question of like, what is too soon? You know, this this thing has happened. This belongs to these people's lives. And there are people who feel very invested in it. And so the the idea of somebody, some stranger coming in and taking photos is outrageous to them. At the same time, I can easily, you know, if I go into a, 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 a ruined city and I walk around Detroit or, or Gary, as you, you describe in the book, I'm going to have an emotional impact. And that's a very real thing. I'm having a very real subjective experience, whether or not I own that place, because I, too, am a human and I live in a place that where it might one day be abandoned. Completely. Mostly it's about paying attention and it's about listening. That's the most important thing. People talked about Detroit. I mean, Detroit is certainly in a sort of a, another renaissance right now, but often white writers talked about Detroit as if it was empty, and it wasn't. It, the white people, off, most of the white people left. Like, there were still full communities of people of color there. And the idea that suddenly this place has lost its value because the people who look like the writers have been gone is totally messed up. So those and, people and are wrong. like erased in yeah, a sense from the yeah. picture. So they've already, they've, they've faced this tragedy in which no one's acknowledging the way that they were affected. And now they're being erased from present history as yeah. it's happening. Okay, I think, I think it's time to go to the second clip. You know what, it's gonna be audience choice. So we have Martin Amos, a writer who most of you are probably have heard of and then Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, and I have no idea what either of them is talking about. Hands for astronaut. Hands for Amos. The astronaut wins. When the very first balloon was launched uh, that could carry people, it was in Paris in the late 1700s, and it was Montgolfier, the brothers. They had hydrogen balloons and hot air balloons, and it was the cutting edge of science. It was the cutting edge of technology. We just learned how to capture a gas like hydrogen that would be lighter than air. You could make a balloon. And the first balloon rose and Ben Franklin was there and it was huge and magnificent. All of those scientists and it rose, but it got out of control and it went and landed out in the countryside 15 miles away from Paris. And the peasants there attacked it with pitchforks because they thought it was an alien coming from space. The schism between learned understanding and scientific pursuit and the common perception of what was normal was that close, just 15 miles away. There was an enormous gap between what we knew and what we were doing and what a lot of folks knew yet or what had, what had become part of common knowledge. So there's nothing new about, uh, about the speed with which we're inventing things and the ability for people to understand what's going on. There's a, there's a recent populist sort of wave of, of, uh, of anti-science and as if that's something new. It's mostly because social media has given everybody uh, what appears to be an equal voice. Um, on the corner of, 
of Hyde Park in London, there's Speaker's Corner, and that used to be the internet, where you could go stand there and yell any stupid thing you wanted. And if people wanted to gather around and listen, that was their choice. But if you, if you weren't interested in whatever that person was spouting, then you didn't need to listen. But now, internet has sort of turned everything into the Speaker's Corner. So you really have to just decide what, what are you gonna listen to and what aren't you? And if someone decides to put forward some stupid idea that is patently false, like if somebody says, the sky is orange, you can have an argument about it if you want, but, but it's, it's obviously not true. So there's really no point in even engaging in conversation. Or if somebody says, the world is flat, it's, it's patently untrue. So there's no point in engaging in conversation because all you're doing is, is giving that person credibility for something that we've known for thousands of years to not be truth. So, so I, I just, I don't even worry about it. The world is full of fascinating, interesting new discoveries and, and we're pushing the very boundaries of, of what we know. Um, Stephen Hawking, who just recently died, the work that he did in trying to understand how the universe works, uh, he, the original thinking, the, there's so many brilliant, motivated people around that uh, why would you engage with someone who is being deliberately ignorant? I don't mind people that just don't know, then they're just in the process of learning. But if someone has chosen to take the facts and be deliberately stupid about them, then I think they've discounted themselves from rational conversation, so I don't bother. If you wrestle with a pig, the best you can be is a pig wrestler. So I wanna do better than that. So uh, just because somebody says something, no matter how big their megaphone is, uh, doesn't mean that they deserve conversation. Just Use your own brain. That's why we each have one. And choose who you're going to disregard. I was just interested in hearing an astronaut talk because I think astronauts are really fascinating. I'm working on a book right now about loneliness, and I feel like there's probably no lonelier profession than being an astronaut. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, they all talk about coming back from space with this like incredible... I mean, maybe not the first or the second or the third time, but the 50th time with this incredible global sense of connectedness and yeah. this feeling that the little divisions between humans are, are, are stupid. And so that's not so lonely, maybe. But I think also the idea of, like there's the, the great profile writer, Chris Jones for Esquire, who has been 15 years ago now, wrote this beautiful profile of these astronauts and at the end of the piece they wait for the moment to see earth out the window every you know every time they orbit and then at the end when the plane or when the um shuttle touches down again on earth the last line is each of them is dreaming of home mm. and that idea of like you make this space that can't be replicated on earth there has to be some sort of lonely disconnect between those two realities right and in a way that universal perspective like you can't have the universal and the local at exactly the same time right. like home is not everywhere yeah one of the books that you've got in process is about loneliness yeah so I, yeah what are some of the thoughts on loneliness that are coming up as you these are essay or mm -hmm. are you an, illustrated yeah essays? a graphic or, essay collection uh -huh. i started by drawing i live in new york and I like watching people and it's a really easy place to watch people, particularly on the subway because you just sit there and stare at people for a long time. I did the series for The New Yorker about urban loneliness and I started drawing people in isolated settings in public because I think it's 
you know, no matter how crowded the space, New York is full of people who are alone. And I thought that was really beautiful and I liked drawing them and I liked watching these people. And then from there, I started getting interested in loneliness as an idea. Like uh, the US Surgeon General has said that loneliness is the biggest health crisis facing America, that it will be the it will be reach epidemic proportions by 2030. The UK just appointed a minister of loneliness. Wow. And so a I started minister of loneliness yeah, in the UK, which is quite a job. Uh, wow. So I started talking to scientists about <laughs> wow. loneliness. So there's a couple, there's a handful of scientists who are like the lone, foremost loneliness experts and researchers in America. And uh, I talked to, to one scientist who sort of stumbled into it. He was like with his friend and they had all these like brains in the freezer and they started studying them and being like, Wow, so they these these brains have such different attributes, and so they started giving people um, different diagnostic tests to determine whether or not they identified with as lonely. Because the time you spend alone has nothing to do with whether or not you're lonely. Everybody has a different barometer for the amount of time they can spend alone. Some people can be alone for their whole lives and not feel lonely, but it's only about how you feel. So if you subjectively feel lonely, you're as at risk. But you're always surrounded by people. You're as at risk as people who spend all of their time alone. Got it. So then from there, they started studying and realizing, you know, people who are lonely die much sooner. They're, they're, um, they're less likely to recover when they get ill, things like this. You know, we've heard of things like this forever with communities. Like they've done research that if people think they're praying, they're being prayed for when they're in the hospital, they are more likely to recover. Right. You know, closeted men with HIV usually die sooner than men who have a large support system. Like we've done these t studies for a long time. Probably it's related also to like stress and cortisol. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But they've, they've started to discover that the subjective feeling of loneliness actually remaps your DNA and it basically changes everything with the way in which you interact with the world. So to me, it's, there's nothing, I've not, never researched anything more interesting. It's really interesting that, I mean, because the world is rapidly urbanizing and I don't, I don't know the stats, but it's crazy. Like the percentage of people that will be living in cities in the coming yeah. decades versus the past decades. So that at the same time as we're coming closer and closer together, loneliness is, you're saying it's increasing. Yeah. Yeah. And also t people today are much less like much more likely to live alone. Uh, like people are delaying marriage. You live alone for longer. People we're living longer. You're much less likely or you're much more likely if you are married to outlive your spouse and live alone. Cities Pe are expensive to live in. People have fewer yeah, kids. Exactly. Like, mm -hmm. And people are more likely to live alone in cities. So there's often a lot larger concentration of loneliness in large cities. At the same time, um, the more isolated you are, the more likely you are to continue isolating yourself, which is why we see, you know, there's a larger rates of child abuse in communities that are, that mm. are more rural and, and um, separated. Like it's very easy when you don't come into contact frequently with your neighbors to assume that everyone is bad. Like the more we interact with one another, the more we have, we understand the, like we, the more we see the good, the more we recognize everyone uh, sort of on an individual level. Right. But the larger spaces we put between each other, the more likely you are to assume the worst. Interesting. And we also get, we also kind of lose the ability, we lose the fluidity and the fluency of interacting with other people. Um, in a recent episode of this show with Neil Gaiman, he was talking about how he goes from one project, like writing, and he was talking about one of the novels, American Gods, I think he said, he, he wrote that thing for two, two and a half years. And when he came out, he was like, he said I was like, um, you know, shell shocked. Like I had no idea how to talk to people at parties, whatever. And so he tries to arrange his career at this point since he has that 
freedom, God bless him, to uh, spend a, a year or two in the writer's cave, but then go do something extremely interactive, yeah. like show running for the TV show of American Gods. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important. I mean, like the science has sort of shown that you can't just thrust yourself after years of isolation into a thriving community. You'll you'll n not know how to interact. Like you're you've stopped producing the chemicals that reinforce social connection. I mean, that's why like the whole uh, prospect of the romantic comedy is usually preposterous. Like in the '90s and early 2000s, like every Sandra Bullock movie. Uh, mm -hmm. In the beginning, like she's supposed to be ugly, but it's very obvious that she's, it's ridiculous. It's like she wears glasses, like, oh, hideous. But, you know, she's always, she's always like isolated in some way. Like she, or her parents are her only friend. Like she lives next door to her parents. Her parents are dead or like she's estranged from her parents or like there's always some scenario. She's always like friends with her apartment super, but no one else. It, you know, if she's good at her job, she's not well liked at work. Like there's all of these like exact things and she's, like, we're like, we know she's alone because she has a cat and she eats takeout. Like, look at her. But then in the end, like, she gets a makeover and a man and, like, she leaves her apartment and, <laughs> which is, like, the origin of, like, the princess narrative. Like, she leaves, she's, she's, every princess is completely isolated. She's, like, removed from society, sometimes literally, like, encased in glass. And then she gets a prince and she leaves her kingdom and everything is solved. But science shows that if any of these people actually existed, the opposite would be true. Like, Sandra would never have been open to meeting the man she literally runs into on the street because she'd already right. been closed off. There would need to be some transitional period, yeah. like maybe a support group for yeah. people who live at home yeah. and wear glasses. And eat, eat, <laughs> eat Oreos with their cats. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this minister of loneliness and I'm not going to forget that soon. Like, what is that guy's job? I think it's a woman. Um, I don't know much about... I that hope, was interesting. Yeah. I assumed it was a man. Okay, yes. I, um, I hope to talk to her someday. I mean, the UK is more progressive with their loneliness studies than the US. I talked a lot with this woman named Sophie who runs this hotline called the Silver Line, which is a place that it's particularly for elderly people who live alone or who don't have communities and they can call in and like they develop these relationships. But it's fascinating. They like the middle of the night is the busiest time. The holidays are really busy, mm. um, but they don't ever say it's about feeling lonely because there's a huge stigma associated with loneliness. No one wants to, no one's going to call and say, I'm lonely. Like they'll call right. and be like, I don't know how to cook a chicken. Can we talk about that? And then they, and then from there you have these conversations, which is a real call that she got. And then by the end of the conversation, he had told, he started telling her, Oh, you know, my wife recently died. This is my first Christmas without her. Yeah, you know, and so in some ways he really did need help learning how to cook a chicken, but he also needed someone to talk to about his wife. Wow. I mean, it's got to be, in the long run, it's got to be about more than helplines too. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like these are all band-aids to the larger problem. Yeah, yeah. Like the, uh, uh, someone who's volunteering on the telephone is not the same thing as a real connection, especially because... Uh, the silver line in this example doesn't want people to get attached to the same person because it can be very damaging if that person moves on. So they never speak to the same person twice. Like it's not the same thing as establishing a long-term. Well, it's a, it's, it's good in the interim. There has to be, I think, a next step. Yeah, we have about 10 minutes left. It's a good time to hear some questions or comments or whatever anyone would like to share. And I think I'm going to run around the audience like Montel and, uh, and put, give you the mic so that we get it recorded. I mean, you don't have to say your name, but if you would like to, please do. Uh, hi, I'm Frank, big fan. 
So I have a question because, uh, particularly because of what you said about how having lots of people around you doesn't necessarily mean that you're more or less at risk to be lonely. Um, and the idea that we normally create art or we think of art and literature as a, a place of connection. So for you, is art and is creating art a solution for loneliness? Or are there other things that we can do as artists that you think help to solve that problem? That's a really good question. Um, that was the great poet, Frank Johnson, everyone. I mean, the thing about making art is it's totally solitary. Like you have to put yourself in a situation where you spend the vast majority of your time alone. At least most creators do, particularly people who are working on really long projects. So I like the idea that art can bring us all together, but especially the, the written arts, like the prose, poetry, graphic novels, we experience those alone. It's not like we all go to the theater together. There are certainly events like this, but mostly we're engaging with those things on our own. So I don't know. I think for me, reading great literature has made me feel less alone and has made me feel more connected. So I think that that's really important. What do you think? I think it's part of the solution. I think it connects us. I think it gives, you know, at its best, it makes people feel less alone. I don't know about you, but like when I was 14, 15, something like that, and feeling very alienated from family and other people around me, like art saved my life a million times. Like music, yeah, was it like that? Yeah. So I mean, um, it can be a lifeline in that way, uh, I, I think, and I think that that can be true throughout life. I've, I still feel that way. Like when I read a when I read a good novel, I still feel like I'm being spoken directly to. Sometimes in the most like vulnerable part of my my heart. Yeah, I think also if you read something or even watch something and you find yourself nodding along because it's something you you feel or you've thought and you feel, see it reflected suddenly and it seems like a shock to you that you're seeing this, this sort of thing repeated back to you, which I think is really valuable. And I think childhood is often a really lonely place. I mean, you're often literally stuck because you see this life you want to start making, but you don't have the tools to do it yet. And the choices choices for your life are often being made by other people right. and you're sort of you have this set of constraints i have a but going back to the thing about how everyone has a different barometer for loneliness like one of my best friends says she cannot remember a time in which she was lonely which blows my mind except for childhood to her it was only childhood and then once she sort of had her own autonomy she felt sort of free to to move through space in a kind of comfortable way that's astonishing yeah. i cannot imagine that never feeling lonely situation yeah never yeah yeah why does she never feel lonely? You know, I don't, I think, I mean, she has a great support system. She's great friends, but she prefers often to spend time alone. And it's, again, it's like we're all programmed in a certain way. And a lot of it has to do with, I mean, we're, one of the reasons we feel so shitty when we're alone for long periods of time is because we've been programmed to stick together. I mean, we can't reproduce if we're isolated and right. we can't, and we're more like historically and in the early days, back yeah. back in the olden days, you know, we would get eaten. We would get, you know, we needed to stick together as a tribe. Yeah, we're social animals yeah. for sure. Okay, uh, other audience questions or comments? Hello, my name is Tony Saladino. I'm from Green Bay and I'm a writer. So I wanted to back up a little bit to when we were talking about cultural appropriation and how uh, insensitivity can crush whole communities, or at least their sense of themselves. Joan Rivers uh, was on Johnny Carson when I was about seven. And she said, where can you find a house for under $100,000? Nowhere. 
and I haven't lived in a house that was worth $100,000 yet. So it crushed me as a seven-year-old child just hearing her one callous statement. She was talking about a culture of millionaires, of course. And then when you said that art saved your life, I've heard that about 30 times in the past year. And it's true. We would all be way worse off without art. And I want to thank you for your participation in it. Thank you. Yeah, that, wow, that, thanks so much. that Joan Rivers anecdote is amazing. Uh, I think that's, I mean, to me, that's the power of art is that if you live in a, even if you live in a small community or a community of people who look just like you, you have access to so much more information now. And I think um, I was just at the Believer Festival in Las Vegas and the great filmmaker Barry Jenkins was saying, I feel like you have to work really hard to be ignorant in 2018. And it is to me, it does seem that goes back to one of the clips we saw. I mean, it does seem to me like a conscious choice. If you're continuing to receive information that was made for you you know, specifically and by looking for art that was made by people just like you, you're limiting yourself in a sort of catastrophic way. And it's just something that's not, it's just, there's so much out there right now. I, yeah, and I think it's a two-way street. I mean, going back to something we were saying before about accessibility, I think there's something in the like, I think that artists have a choice in the in the attitude that they bring to their their projects as to whether they are kind of estranging themselves from the audience or sort of demanding only certain people are worthy to be at my table kind of thing or not regardless of the culture that that the art is coming out of you know I think it's a, a two-way street that way definitely I mean it's complicated because the you know the our astronaut friend was talking about <laughs> the internet and how suddenly every voice is at the same can be at the same fever pitch and there is a way in which I think that's that can be damaging because it's hard to siphon out even like what's true, what's what's not true. Um, and I think there's a way in which like everyone's really brave behind their computer and people feel a lot of license to say things they would never say to someone's face. And I think that can be damaging, especially if we're talking about literary criticism or even an exchange of ideas. Um, I think often the internet is in a space in which we are really exchanging ideas. It's a, it's a place in which we're sort of like shouting mm -hmm. the same thing over and over and over again and then like chastising people who don't agree with us. Yeah, and I think, I think that the kind of equalizing platform of the internet and the sort of the populist egalitarian quality that that has, like anyone can get up, everyone's got a mic, you know, whatever. We like that on the one hand, especially in Western society. It's like, you know, that's good. Like people should have a voice, right? On the other hand, I think we get, it gets us confused about questions of authority, like as we're trying to give power to individuals, it brings up criticisms of the idea of authority, period, right? Totally. So, so that science, okay, the earth is round, guys, you know, even that <laughs> can come into yeah. question in that public forum yeah. because it's like, we don't want any authority, everyone has the mic. Totally. I mean, it brings into question like the idea of the gatekeeper who, you know, like with the rise of self-publishing, the idea was like, now everyone can have their voices heard. We don't need a cultural gatekeeper keeping out certain voices. And in a way, I think that's really valuable. On the other hand, gatekeepers do things like fact check and help give a larger microphone to a voice than, than maybe just putting something on the internet can can. So I, I do think it's like a, a pretty complicated question. It's very complicated. Very easy to throw babies out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. I think that brings us to the end of our time. Uh, I, I want to thank you guys so much for coming out. 
to hear us today. Uh, this this was a lot of fun. And Kristen Radke, thank you for being thank with you. us. Thank you. this week's episode of Think Again, our second live show ever. Come find us on Facebook. If you do that, we have a private group there where we talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. We'll be back next week with something completely different.